Well, damn. This is Walter Simonson for 11 O'Clock Comics. Tune in. This is Louise Simonson for 11 O'Clock Comics. It's awesome. <laughs> Sanity taken indeed, Mr. Hetfield. Tell you about why in a few minutes. What a week. Big, big, bad, but a boom. What a week. Rife with problems. I'm getting this uh, episode of 11 O'Clock Comments out to you. I'll tell you all about it as soon as the, uh, the boys finish what they're doing behind me. You probably won't be able to decipher very much of this anyway, but just to be sure. I'll tell you after. It's been crazy. We uh, we had a, a major a major dilemma this week. Sad, kind of funny, <laughs> but uh, a little bit sad as well. So I'm going to put Metallica's Hardwired on pause. To bring you this episode of 11 O'Clock Comics, episode 447, and I am Vince B. And that's all you're getting this week. (laughs) Because uh, it's a Saturday as I record this, and if you know the methodology we employ here at 11 O'Clock Comics, you know that we usually record on a Wednesday or Thursday. Lately, it's been Thursday night to be specific, and we did our requisite two-and-a-half-hour-plus weekly thing, and when I imported the audio file into my editor of choice, I was very surprised to see that the entire file had peaked the meter straight across, and I was like, what is this? So I zoomed in, and, um, and I was looking at the initial five minutes of the audio file, which unfortunately came out great. Um, after five minutes, however, it was plagued by this weird recurring barrage of bleeps and bloops that would intercut a word or a phrase and it would make us sound like robots. Um, if you'd like to experience what came out of that, you can go to our Facebook page, and I posted the entire file for your listening displeasure, just so you can uh, experience uh, the massive destructive force of whatever this error was. We have s- suspicions that it has something to do with the new version of Skype. Um, yes, I'm a dumbass, and unfortunately, I did not have automatic updates turned off in Skype. Sometimes when you launch the file, it'll automatically update the Skype application to the latest version. And that was okay for eight years. Um, unfortunately, this, this newest version of Skype is not playing well with the tool uh, with which we use to record from Skype. So this is the result. And um, for you people listening to this episode just on the on the feed, here <laughs> is what the entire two and a half hours, minus five minutes, of last week's episode sounds like. 
brace yourselves. This is funny, yes, um, disturbing, possibly, uh, but unfortunate. Uh, listen. <laughs> oh, so I am dying to hear what you all have. Oh, I read everything. Oi. I think it's pretty much safe to say that there is no one out there that would endure that for two and a half hours, which is why we scrapped the episode. And in scheduling the uh, the retake, with it being the weekend and all, couldn't corral all the guys. I mean, they do have lives, and unlike myself, who uh, is comics twenty four seven. David and Jason have have lives and people and, and things they got to do. So, I'm sacrificing, not really, and going it alone this week to bring you the new 11 o'clock comics, which was sponsored by who? Come on, y'all know by now. Discount Comic Book Service, DCBService.com, the absolute best. If you don't want to pay a lot for comics, and who the heck does? Head on over to DCBService.com. One more time for the hearing impaired. DCBService.com. And you can get your favorite books for a mere fraction of the cover price. This month's spotlighted specials, carefully selected by me, because I wanted to. Uh, the first one from DC. It's the Commandy Challenge. Woohoo! This is the one you all know by now that you have to order. Uh, I've worked out an arrangement with DCBS that uh, every order that comes in that does not have the commandy challenge among the books ordered will not be taken seriously. Nope, they're going to kick it right out. So if you want your books, you got to order this book. Yes, I'm holding you all hostage. And if you believe any of that to be true, you're as crazy as David. Uh, this is a massive 12-issue miniseries featuring... Comics greats, Walt Simonson, Dale Eaglesham, Keith Giffen, um, Dan DiDio, I did say greats, Dan Abnett, and a host of just amazing, amazing talent. It's set in the mold of the classic DC challenge where um, a group of comic book creators will initiate a chapter, leave it at some sort of cliffhanger, and the next group of creators have to pick up the reins and run with it and make it interesting and exciting and make sense. And then at the end of their chapter, they do the same for another creative team. It's awesome. It's a lot of fun. Cover price, $4.99. Your price, $2.49. From Dark Horse, the god of comics, Larry Martyr, has uh, seen fit to release another volume of Bean World, this being volume four, titled Hoka Hoka Burble Burble. Say it again with me if you really want to. Hoka Hoka Burble Burble. It's a sixteen ninety nine hardcover. But because you're smart and you go to DCBService.com, you will get it for ten dollars and nineteen cents. That's forty percent off the cover price. Last but certainly not least, our buddy Ryan Brownie and Charles Sewell and Jordan Boyd are initiating a new series at Image, and it's called Curse Words. It's got evil wizards, bad magic, and a whole bunch of other stuff. You can get in on the ground floor of this series. Uh, cover price is three ninety nine. Your price, again, because you're smart, 
is a dollar ninety nine. DCBService.com. Do not mind late orders or order additions. Get your books all shipped up real nice and sturdy and, and warm and cozy directly to your home. It's the only way to go. Please get there. DCBService.com. All right. Now this is the part of the show where we usually do the drink roll call and the thank yous. Uh, as far as the drink roll call goes, I'm drinking Diet Pepsi, but you're never going to hear me do that because I usually drink when the other guys are speaking, so you don't have to listen to the glug, glug, glug of me drinking. Uh, and since the other guys aren't here this week, I'm not Mr. Rude, and you're not going to hear me drink. I'll just pause the damn thing. You didn't need to know that, but that's what I'm going to do. Uh, and the thank yous, I do have a really big thank you, but I'm going to save it till the end. Because that's where it belongs. And I'm just going to get right on into the comics. Um, now, before I recorded this episode, I solicited questions and or comments on Twitter. I did not want to be without topics to discuss. Uh, I do have a lot of things to talk about. But uh, being alone, I have no one else to to bounce ideas off of. And so I, I, I shot it out there on the Twitter, and I got some responses. Uh, first of all, uh, Mr. Wade Kapanke just said, I love you guys, and well, we love you too, Wade, our buddy. He's always there for us. Um, but Mr. Scott Allison Levick not only posed a question, but he did proffer me a great segue. He asked, uh, with so many choices with what to read, do you have a plan or do you just grab whatever catches the eye? That's a great question. Um, usually I don't have a plan. It's the kind of same approach that we have here at 11 o'clock comics. No plan, no script, no, uh, nothing preordained. I just open up the box and I have this weird habit I like to arrange my books by alternating spines because when you get a substantial stack of comics, if you stack them with all the spines on the same side, the topmost books will tend to to roll, and that drives me absolutely crazy. So what I do is I take the first book, spine to the right. Next book, I stack on it with the spine to the left and so on. It's, it's crazy and it, it's, I guess, obsessive compulsive. Um, but that's what I do because I noticed that when you got a stack of 50 to 60 books, the topmost books start to warp and that's not good. And then if you get a book with a clay coated cover or a sturdier stock cover that just throws the whole thing out of whack, you got to put those on the bottom. Um, so no, there's not a plan with what to read usually um whenever i do get an issue of haunted horror and or weird love from craig yo and idw that will make the leap to the top of whatever stack of reading comes out of that box uh, you guys know me by now i loves my horror i loves my golden age comics and this haunted horror is the best of like everything it's it's so much of a value every month you get 48 maybe pages on toothy 
thicker stock. I mean, I've talked about this before. Clay coated cover of, of heavy stock. It's just great. This issue is specifically number 24. And, uh, if you don't read this book, usually haunted horror is about ghosts and goblins and murders gone wrong and, uh, ne'er do wells who get the comeuppance at the end due to some nasty event or, or paranormal entity or stuff like that. But, but this issue seems to be really heavy on the kaiju, which is atypical. Uh, not that I don't mind it at all, but it's just different for this book. And, uh, you know, uh, we at 11 o'clock comics love our kaiju, so I had to bring this one to the table, uh, this week. There are a number of really great stories in here, but I want to talk about three of them specifically. The, the first one is called The Thing That Grew. And it was uh, reprinted from Harvey Comics, Witch's Tales number 27, which was published in 1954. And it is illustrated by Manny Stallman. Um, page and th- oh, here we are. Um, it's a, it's a, a wacky story. There's a scientist, and his name is Professor Marvel, but it's M-A-R-V-E-L-L-E. Uh, and he's an explorer, scientist, big brain, right? So he goes, uh, exploring, spelunking one day, and he, and he finds a baby dinosaur encased in ice. Yep. So what would you do if you, if you found the same? You would bring it back to your, to your wherever, and, uh, if you're Professor Marvel, why you just concoct, um, an elixir called the Secret of Life, and and throw it all over the dinosaur and that's what he does he he lets the dinosaur steep in this elixir overnight but when professor marvell wakes up unfortunately he finds his lab in a shambles and a uh, big hole in the wall oh what could have possibly happened i got a big ass hole in my wall well dumbass the dinosaur came to life thanks to your magnificent uh secret of elixir that you chose not to give um, to humanity, but to waste on a dinosaur. And uh, the dinosaur is now tromping around outside. He, he sees gigantic footsteps. He follows them. And the dinosaur keeps growing. It won't stop growing. This thing keeps getting larger and larger. And it, it's it's tromping all over the place. They call him the army because that's what you do with a giant monster. And the army comes in and bullets have no effect. Of course, right? Uh, the Air Force even takes a stab at it and drops an H-bomb. They just had it in the back room. So they loaded it up and they, they dropped the H-bomb on this dinosaur. Mm-mm, that's not doing anything. Uh, there's a really cool uh, pair of panels in this story where they show a zoomed-in map of the United States. And the dinosaur is almost as big as Vermont. It's just a silhouette of a dinosaur over a, a, a flat map, but the dinosaur is almost as big as Vermont. And then they have another panel, uh, where the dinosaur is almost, is bigger. No, it's bigger than New Hampshire. That's a big ass dinosaur, right? Uh, but see, they didn't think of that when they were illustrating the story. They didn't put it into perspective because they show the dinosaur attacking a city after that panel, and he's big. You know, he's, he's a very big dinosaur, but he's not 
New Hampshire big. If something was as big as New Hampshire, you would only see a tiny fraction of it. But in this panel, you see like a large portion of the leg as it's crushing a building. It would be like a toenail, right? But um, it's all in fun. So uh, the Air Force fails. But the dinosaur, this is the weird part of the story. The dinosaur keeps growing and growing until he gets to the size where... It, the, there's a, there's a wide shot of the planet Earth, and the dinosaur it looks like it's humping it, like he is cradling his body is just laying over the Earth like he's riding a, a a beach ball, and he's so big, obviously, that he has knocked the planet Earth out of orbit. Yep, and the the planet and the dinosaur are careening into the sun, and they do so and explode, and everybody dies with the dinosaur. And that's the end. Or is it? Uh-huh. You always get this little twist O. Henry ending on these things. But this is a great little story. It's a lot of fun, obviously. Uh, the dinosaur is green, and it's a brontosaurus, which history tells us weren't all that aggressive. This one's pretty pissed off, but I guess if you found yourself in a, in a world you never made like Howard... You'd be kind of ticked off too, right? Uh, the best story in this book, and I have no idea why I'm sandwiching it between two lesser stories, but that's how I roll, right? It's called The Dark Abysmal, and it was published in 1953 in Fiction House's Monster Number no. 2, illustrated by John Bel Castro, who also, aka, went by the name of Johnny Bell. I love this story. It, it's amazing. It's uh, it's set in the Kentucky town of Gophersville, you know, and um, <laughs> it uh, opens with a group of kids, and they're in um, they're in Ben Jackson's pond, having fun, you know, trespassing. That's always fun. Um, and young Daniel is asked by his friend who's fishing. He said, yo, Daniel, my, my, my hook is stuck at the bottom of the pond. Can you go down there and unhook my hook? So Daniel, being the good boy, jumps in, swims down, unhooks the hook. But when he's down there, he finds a cute little thing buried in the muck at the bottom of the pond. And if you look closely, there's something in the background. But myself did not look closely, so the shock ending was shocking to me. But had I examined the entirety of the panel, instead of being distracted by the cute little monster buried in the muck, I would have seen it. Um, and this thing is really cute, and it takes such a shine to young Daniel. It's like his buddy, and it, it, it's, it looks like um, an eggplant with Spock ears and deep deep inset pupilless eyes um, and it has two arms but the rest of it is tentacles it's a cool cool design and if you would like to see what this bad boy looks like you can go to our Facebook page because I will put the pages up there for your perusal because talking about it is one thing but actually seeing it wow that's the best right so Daniel's walking around with this little creature and they're buddies right but Mr. Jackson in whose pond they trespassed, says, you know, that damn thing is mine because you done found it on my property and I wants it. See, 
Mr. Jackson is a, an entrepreneur in type, and he thinks he could sell this thing to the circus and make like millions of dollars and and you know be happy. But Daniel's not having it. He's like, this is my little guy. He loves me, and I'm taking care of him. But Mr. Jackson clocks the kid. Remember, this is pre-code comics, so that kind of thing was okay. He he punches the kid, and the kid does like a somersault, and the monster, the creature—sorry, we won't call it a monster yet—the the creature falls off him, and and they're they're picking the kid up, and they're not looking, and a gigantic shadow is cast over the group. The creature begins to grow. I guess that's a theme of this this issue of of haunted horror. The creature begins to grow to gigantic proportions and starts to level the town of Gophersville. It is pissed. Um, just ransacking things. Again, the ineffectual army is called in. <laughs> they do nothing. It does, the bullets seem to go right through it. And oddly enough, the creature seems to have the ability to cast illusions because, um, there's a scene with a, a an old model truck, and uh, the creature takes on multiple instances behind the truck. Like there's there's ghost images of the creature overlaid on each other. Really nice drawing by Johnny Bell. Um, he's got a very scratchy, uh, moody style. A lot of cross hatching, but it works. He he employs it very well. This thing is sharp looking, um, and unlike any of the other stories in the issue like this doesn't even look it does have a very golden age feel to it but it's i hesitate to say more illustrative you be the judge go look at the pages so this thing grows like massively and, and the army's crap in the bed it, it's destroying barns and and shit um and then there's a twist end as usual but it, it's a happy ending which is another atypical kind of ending for these things. But when you see this creature, I mean, it immediately won me over. It's, if if you can call a monstrous creature gorgeous, it's it's drawn very, very amazingly well. And I love this 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 uh, story a lot, which uh, usually I, I won't go back to the source if I have a reprint. Like, the reprint is, is good enough for me. If I ever found... A copy of Monster Number Two, I would definitely buy it if it was competitively priced. I, I don't want to go like I'm not a CGC dude, y'all know that. Uh, but I would like to have this book in my collection. It's one of those special stories that I think um, I don't think I know that I would want. Uh, last, but certainly not least, is the Crawling Horror. This was pulled from Fawcett's. Beware Terror Tales, published, I don't know the date. I'll tell you in a second, as soon as I find it. There it is. Crazy story. It was published in 1952, November, specifically. Uh, this is a weird, weird story. There's two uh, scientists. They're buddies. And they live together in a shack in the woods. Uh, hey, that's their decision. You know, I'm not going to judge. Uh, one is a biochemist. Yep. And he has taken a tiny, tiny bit of flesh from a frog heart and has managed to grow it into a living mass of what he calls reactive protoplasm. It's 
flubber. It looks like flubber. It's green and gooey, and he keeps it in a bucket. <laughs> it looks like a salad gone horribly wrong. Um, and he, when he feeds it, he, he feeds it rodents, and he's dangling the mouse about a foot over the bucket, and the protoplasm will reach out and grab the mouse and consume it. So, like, he's happy. Look what I did. This was crap I pulled from a frog's heart, and now it's a thing that seems to have some kind of sentience, right? So, but he's not completely happy because there's a couple of things with the experiment that he has been unable to answer. But, luckily for him, his buddy, Titus, uh, is a, a big brain as well and has created an electronic brain. He keeps it in the corner of the shack. And uh, his, Wilbur, who is the uh, biochemist, had never realized that it was in the shack. And it's not a gigantic shack either, which makes me think that Wilbur is not all that perceptive, right? You have this big vending machine-looking metal object with levers and, and buttons on it and all crap on it and a gigantic antenna, and you don't notice it. What? But anyway... Benefit of the doubt, right? Um, Titus says, you know, here's what we can do. My electronic brain is like the smartest thing ever, and we'll ask it what to do with your experiment. In mathematical terms, of course, we'll code a question for the electronic brain and feed it to it, and it will solve all our problems. What could possibly go wrong here? So they do so, and the uh, electronic brain comes up with a growth serum. Here, feed this thing to your, your flubber and everything will be great. No, everything's not great. Um, Titus, creator of the electronic brain, thinks it's awesome and he wants to exploit the green goo to take over the world. He's, this guy is obviously, you know, get up and go grab it at the grab the bull by the horns kind of dude and he wants to take over the planet he's like shit this is our ticket buddy let's go out and conquer everybody and and wilbur's like no you're not using my flubber for evil that's not what i created it for i created it to eat mice and and shit um but uh, wilbur has to go to town for something uh, unfortunately, and when he does, Titus does what Titus does, and he hooks up the flubber, which is now really big. It, it outgrew the bowl. It's it's very large, uh, maybe about the size of uh, two cows. It's pretty big, and it just keeps growing. Uh, Titus had to shave parts of it off because it was growing out of the bucket, and it was unkempt look like green dreadlocks and he didn't like that but anyway so he he hooks up the flubber to the electronic brain and it does not end well for anybody here um except well i won't say that read the damn story it's um this book just makes my my month when it comes out um like i said craig yo they're reprints uh, very attractively priced at 4.99 and it's got a whole horror host vibe. Craig Yo will take on the guys of Forlock the Warlock. And uh, there's Madame Clesia that hosts some of them. It's, it's a great 
little comic, and uh, I, you, should, you would do well to check this out. If you like horror books, which if you don't, you know, you probably fast forward through this anyway. Well, the tweets are rolling in here. I got a couple more for you. Uh, this one comes from Keith C. Amaral. It's a good question. What's your assessment on industri- the industry landscape? Marvel's doubling down on diversity versus DC's back-to-basics approach. He likes much of Marvel's line, uh, the fresh talent and the new takes, but with Rebirth success, it seems like there's a pressure to reel it in. <sighs> I, I'm not a huge fan of diversity for diversity's sake. It seems counterproductive. If, if it was a natural thing, um, a natural outgrowth of the stories, then great. But setting out to make established characters who are male into female characters just because not, I, I don't care for that. It's the, the, um, the goal is obvious, isn't it? When, when Thor becomes a woman, and yes, anyone could become Thor simply by picking up the hammer. I get that. Or, or the magics of the hammer can make anyone Thor. Uh, the possibility's there, but it just seems contrived to me. And, and as much as Jason Aaron says that, you know, um, it was a natural outgrowth of the story, I'm, I'm not buying that too much. I, I don't like it when the, the, the switch, the script, not the switch, when the script is flipped on already established heroes. If you would like to make a new hero, like Ironheart, which is a young black woman in uh, one of Tony Stark's armors, then that's great. Or, uh, see, I don't know the specifics of it. We talked, well, the guys talked about Ironheart on the... Uh, the episode that you will never hear unless you have extreme uh, fortitude. The, they talked about, let's see, infamous and invincible Iron Man. And they, they were getting into it. They both read the books and, and they, they seem to be uh, enjoying certain aspects of it and not enjoying other things. But I guess that's cool where, you know, a female Iron Man, that's great. It, it works. It's not super contrived as a uh, a female thor or um yeah see there's that hypocritical crap coming back where uh she hulk i have expressed uh very much uh liking jen as the she hulk and isn't that the same thing but it's it's a it's a strange question question that i i have to really think about because as soon as I answer uh, past um, opinions prove me wrong but I don't know uh, needless to say whatever needless, needless to say I'm not digging Marvel at the at the moment so I don't know what they're doing I, I know that they are elevating new characters new female and and um uh, characters other than white, which is a great thing. Go ahead, do it. Have fun. But it doesn't mean squat if, if I'm not reading the books and I'm not reading Marvel at all. The only book I'm reading from Marvel at the moment is Doctor Strange because it's flipping awesome. Chris Pacello is absolutely destroying 
each and every page. He's he's pushing it down um, and standing on on its neck. It's amazing. He is. I think it's it's Bocello's best work, which is saying a lot, right? Because we we've all seen the grandeur of of the awesome Chris Bocello, but this just seems like he elevated it again with this book. Uh, and the subject matter is very much conducive to his approach to comics, right? Um, but Keith, I'm sorry, it's not really an answer to your question, but um, I'm not reading Marvel. I know what they're doing. And I find, like I said, forced diversity is exactly that. It's forced. And I don't vibe on it. Uh, we got another question from Mr. Neeks. I can't really tell if it's a man or woman, but he does have Jesse Custer as his avatar. So I'm going to assume it's, it's a mister. Mr. Neeks, uh, he asks, what books have you guys dropped reading in issues recently? And transitioned over to trade due to reading it better that way. Well, that's not often my approach. When I drop a book in favor of the trades, it usually means that I wasn't reading the book on the regular as I would receive it from DCBS. Uh, and that's, you all, you've offered me again a great segue because one book that I am reading in trade, and you can order this trade right now, this month, currently, on dcbservice.com, and it's it's discounted 50% off. And I'm going to tell you what that book is, uh, but not without prefacing what I'm about to tell you, with the fact that I did not like this book very much when it first came out. In fact, I poo-pooed it and said, I'm done, after the uh, zero issue. And shame on me. Because I have caught up on every instance of this character published at this new publisher to date, and I really enjoyed the book. So shame on me. Uh, the character's Rom. <laughs> Big surprise, right? I read Rom number zero to four and Rom Revolution, which, uh, of course, are published by IDW, plot and script by Christos Gage and Chris Rial, illustrated by David Messina. And color assists by a woman I want to know because she has the most awesome name in the multiverse. Her name is Michelle Pasta. Now, how could you not like a woman named Michelle Pasta? I don't know. Incomprehensible, right? But they've made a few tweaks to our, our good old Rom. He, he's no more a space knight. I guess Marvel has the lockdown on that term. So Rom is now the Wraith Slayer, and Galador is no more. He is now a member of the Soul Star Order. And as I, I told the guys, I said that it's, what the heck is the difference in the name? It's still the same thing, whether it's, it's Galador or the Soul Star Order or Wraith Knight, Wraith, or sorry, Wraith Slayer or Space Knight. It's the same thing. They, they, they are doing what they have to do probably for legal reasons because uh, I'm sure Marvel owns both of those terms and the, the story, the story is not suffering at all for it. It's the same thing. Um, the, uh, Soul Star Order have purged their galaxy of the evil dire wraiths. They're gone. And now they are setting out to new 
avenues to further eliminate the dire wraith scourge from wherever they have fled. It's a cool premise. Uh, you know where they went, namely Earth, right? They're on planet Earth. And their infestation is pretty damn substantial because they have taken over entire, entire towns. Um, Ram arrives in Northern California. The analyzer, check, and the neutralizer, check, are in, uh, operation. Uh, but the, um, dire wraiths, with their magic or or their science or whatever, have managed to make Rom's analyzer not work all that well. So he's at a bit of a disadvantage, but not really, because he comes into contact with a policewoman named uh, Camilla Byers, and she is wounded in a dire wraith attack. Because of this wound, she's been infested Infected, yeah, by the uh, the bad mojo of the diarrhaeths, and it will eventually consume her, eat her right up, turn her into a, a diarrhaeth. But for the time being, because she has a little eensy teensy bit of diarrhaeth uh, coursing through her bloodstream, she is able to do what the analyzer cannot. She can recognize the presence of uh, humans masquerading well dire wraiths masquerading as humans and uh, so she's kind of leveling the playing field for now with rom's perusal of of uh, those he has come to eliminate there's a really cool dire wraith sorcerer named dirge and this guy's awesome and they've david messina and and company they've tweaked the design of the dire wraiths from what we know the the pudgy ruddy brown um tongue piercing thingamajig dire wraiths are no more they're they're more uh, sleek more uh, they're thinner they're a lot thinner this group of dire wraiths seems to have uh, exercised regularly whereas the ones we know sat on the couch all day and uh, they're the color is a bit different but again i like the new design it doesn't really matter it's this is still in my opinion, the guys don't feel the same way, but that's on them. This is still the same ROM we know and love. The the uh, neutralizer has been given a serious upgrade. It's not an easy-bake oven that shoots, you know, energy. Like ROM's original energy, or neutralizer, it was a box with a slit in it. And yeah, we love it because we grew up with it, but... Modern times are what they are, and um, an easy-bake oven with a handle is not going to cut it these days. So they have updated the neutralizer, and it's really cool. It's all teched out, and it uh, not excessively so. It's it's very well designed. It, there's a, it comes out like an X, and there's a bar in the middle that and and Rom destroys the diorates with it. It's it's pretty damn cool. As I was reading, I believe it was in the first issue. There's a group of characters that show up at the end. And initially, I was like, oh damn. Here's IDW doing what IDW does with the, with the, the massive crossovers. G.I. Joe, uh, specifically Scarlet and, uh, others, uh, appear at the end of an issue of ROM. And I thought about it for a couple minutes and 
that is totally in line with Marvel's approach to Rom. One of the best things I, I loved about the original series was the way Rom would interact with other characters in the Marvel Universe, right? The X-Men, etc. And um, why should it be any different in IDW? Same as it ever was, right? So they mention the Transformers in Rom. And with the presence of G.I. Joe... It, Rom is now firmly integrated into the IDW uh, universe as far as licensed characters goes. I'm, gonna, I, I'm sure Mask is going to show up. Hopefully not the Ghostbusters. But the idea of Rom interacting with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles has me a little bit giddy. I got to admit, it's, that's, that's a, a cause for rejoice, I think. Your mileage may vary. Um, why not mix Rom? with other heroes and villains in this shared universe. It's the way it was done. It's the way it will be done now. It's just, it's fun stuff. And uh, David Messina's art, I like it a lot. Jason called me out on it during the original recording and uh, claimed that Messina's art was a little too clean for me. I don't dislike clean. I dislike boring. And Messina's art is not that. He's got a real nice handle on character design. And yes, everything is a bit slick, but it's not without artifice. The, the, the lines are, the thicks and thins are there. It's, it's, I don't want to call it manga-esque, but there is an element of that. There's a tad a bit of exaggeration in the facial features. The eyes are kind, not excessively big, but large. They're, his women are very attractive, very pretty. His men are very rugged, and as it should be for something like this. Um, if if you had, say, Kevin Eastman illustrate this issue, while I'm sure it would be visually appealing to myself and fans of Kevin Eastman, I don't think it would have got the job done for the wider audience. Is this what they're trying to do with this? They're trying to make Rom appeal to the big picture, which is great. I want to see a lot of people reading Rom. It's a great, great character. And Rom is essentially the same in this this new series. He's the Rom we know and love. So again, not a bad thing at all. I, uh, I would implore you to read Rom. Don't listen to David and Jason. They don't know what the hell they're talking about. This, this I can say that because they can't counter me now. This is the best. Um, Rom is pretty good stuff from IDW. Ooh, another tweet has rolled in, this time from Valerian. And they ask, a uh, long-time listener, boy, thank you. Love the show. Again, thank you. Uh, always wondered if you have created comic ideas, sketches, stories, etc. of your own. Yes, I have. Okay. Next up. <laughs> Next up, I got something great. Really great. Uh, this elicited a groan from Jason <laughs> in the initial stages of me talking about it. Same as it ever was, right? Uh, I prefaced my comments with the fact that I think that this character is one of the all-time greatest heroes ever. Ever! Um, it's Tarzan. Ah, come on. A lot of you have to agree with me. Tarzan is awesome. And this book is also that. It is uh, published by Dark Horse. It was originally 
a seven issue miniseries published by Malibu. But Dark Horse is the uh, current resting place of all things Tarzan. And so they have uh, scooped it up, collected it, recolored it, and published it in an affordable 1999, har- no, not a hardcover, 1999 trade paperback. It was written by Thomas Yates ooh, and Henning Coor, uh, illustrated by the awesome, don't disagree with me, Thomas Yates. It is called Tarzan, The Beckoning. Oh, so good. Um, when it opens, Tarzan and his lady, Jane, are living in civilization. San Francisco, uh, to be exact. And they are uh, existing under uh, false names. They're uh, known as Jane and John Caldwell. Um, but uh, Mr. Tarzan, he's going through a rough patch because um, he's currently working to eliminate the illegal trade of ivory. Seems to be a big thing in uh, San Francisco. Uh, it's illegal. So Tarzan's going around harassing shopkeepers who sell the banned material. He's ripping their shops apart and coming really, really close um, to killing these shop owners. Because uh, during the, the, the most recent instance of him intervening, while he's in the shop, throwing crap around, he, he gets the scent of one of his old friends, uh, an elephant named One Tusk. And the fact that he got the scent in a, um, in an antique shop means that his old friend is now no more, right? Uh, and the beast takes over. Tarzan goes red and just freaks out and just, he, like you said, inches away from killing the, the shop owner. And this kind of stuff has been happening with increasing frequency. He, and he's wondering why. Uh, Jane's wondering why. She's like, they were, they were out to dinner and, um, Jane introduced Tarzan, John, to her friends. And as he's sitting there eating, he glosses over and, and he goes, his mind Wanders and goes somewhere else, back to the days of the uh, the Kerchak tribe, because um, one of the people at the table was eating meat, and and the the primates that Tarzan hung with didn't eat meat on the regular. They did occasionally, and when they did do that, they would have this this elaborate ritual would precede the eating of the meat, uh, jumping around, you know, gesturing, whooping it up. And, and it was, it was, it was a thing they needed to do to, to sanctify and to thank the organism that gave its life for their sustenance. It, it was a very, very special ritual they, they would reserve for certain times. And, and Tarzan's imagining this. Of, of he and the apes all freaking out over this meat. And, um, when he comes to, he's standing on the, the balcony of this restaurant and he's looking in at what he had just done unknowingly. And he trashed the place, broke the window, turned the table over. People are freaking out. And Jane's like, what in the hell is going on with you, man? You are, you're like back in the jungle. You're back in Africa. We got to figure out what, what's going on. Turns out, long story short, I'll save you the details to read in this trade. Um, 
Tarzan's under a very, very powerful spell. Bad hoodoo on, on Tarzan. Um, and it's, it's odd because it is cast by a man in Africa named Session Ur. This man does not leave Africa for a very specific reason. Uh, he's also known as the Spider God. Now Tarzan didn't know that many, 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 many decades ago when he had saved Session Ur by, from becoming a lion's dinner. And because of Tarzan's actions, the man, a shaman, a wise man, well, a sorcerer, a god, um, granted Tarzan perpetual youth. Now, yes, it's a story mechanism, a narrative mechanism, but it's also a really efficient way of not having to explain why Tarzan never ages. Because he is owned by the Burroughs estate, and the Burroughs estate would like to keep making money on Tarzan. Um, so they came up uh, with this somewhat contrived explanation of why Tarzan doesn't age. It's a, it's a, it's kind of neat, you know, because Tarzan would save someone from um, attack like that, and it's also it 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 solves two purposes. It allows future writers, other than Burroughs, to write Tarzan stories and keep him young and attractive and uh, easy on the eyes, and that's what people want, right? It's the same way that uh, Batman and, and Superman haven't aged all these years. Other reasons, but the same goal. Um, so Tarzan saved this dude from attack, gave him perpetual life, and it was an ordeal that was not easy, you'll see in the book. And now he's tar- calling Tarzan back to Africa through this 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 spell. He's drawing him back. Why? I'm not, I'm not going to tell you because I want you to read the book. Um, it's not altruistic at all. But Mr. Yates and Kure or Kur have included. And this is neat. If you're not a Tarzan fan, if you're not steeped in the Tar- Tarzan mythology like myself, the major beats in, in, in the Tarzan mythology are explored in this book. Flashbacks uh, with the Kerchak tribe and other things. It goes um, into his origin. That's nice to know. Uh, his time with the Kerchak tribe, his perpetual youth. Opar is in here. Even Atlantis is in this book. Um, and there are, there are wrongdoers thrown into the mix. Uh, the antagonists are many. Um, the man who controls the ivory trade in San Francisco, a man named Foon or Poon, but I would, I think he wants to be called Foon. I wouldn't want to be called Poon. Um, he wants Tarzan eliminated. So what he does is, unknown to him, he hires the son of one of Tarzan's old acquaintances, a boxer. Uh, and the son's name's Punchy in, or nicknamed Punchy in honor to, uh, his father's, uh, time in the ring. Not a great fighter, but, you know, the son continues the legacy and he's old now. He's in his seventies and he is experienced in nasty stuff. He, when someone, um, needs to be eliminated, he, he knows the people to get in contact with and, you know, all the right words and the tactics. This guy knows them. So he rounds up a bunch of mercenaries and they follow Tarzan 
to Africa. And it's kind of like a, a an avatar scenario at one point. The uh the tribe that that gives uh Tarzan a bit of um solace so to speak and and cover in in the Africa. They live in this giant treetop village. And there's an Apache helicopter and they're almost ready to blow the stuffing out of this treetop village when something, uh, a bunch of things intervene. It's a cool little scene, but it will make you think Avatar without the kaboom. Um, and there's magic in here and jungle adventure, of course, uh, alternate dimensions. And it, no, it's all marvelous, marvelous stuff illustrated by one of the finest craftsmen to ever bring the ape man to life tom yates we know mr yates from his time on swamp thing and and others but um he has a real knack for tarzan uh draws a very very handsome tarzan an alluring jane too like he i think tom yates secretly in love with jane because the pages featuring that character are exquisite uh one point jane also loses uh, hold on who she is and, and her history. She, her mind is, is clouded by someone in this and she's pursued by this tribe of S&M looking dudes with leather collars and goofy, they're not pleasant at all. And they're inbred to make it worse. Um, and, uh, she eludes her attackers and is all sweaty and shit and she decides I'm gonna take a a bath in this pool. And that's what Jane does, right? So she, of course, disrobes. And the way that Yates draws her, it's just amazing. The lines are, they're, they're elegant and at one time, at one time, and, and they're also sultry and, and it's just beautiful. It's a, kind of like a Perez thing. When, when Perez drew the Scarlet Witch and you could tell he was into the character because every curl of that hair was delineated and, and the, the shadows were perfect. And the same thing with Yates. He, he just lavishes very much attention on Jane, which is, it's all good, right? So, um, like I said, published by Dark Horse, Tarzan the Beckoning, uh, very pulpy. Don't let Jason fool you. That's a good thing. Uh, investigate. Now more tweets are rolling in. Uh, this one is from our buddy, Jason Ford, and he asks, did you get the Cerebus covers hardcover? And what are your thoughts on Dave Sims Kickstarter? Well, I have all but eliminated, uh, Dave Sim from my consciousness. I am a fan of the majority, I guess you could say of Cerebus, but, um, Recent developments in Mr. Sims' life and, um, opinions and which are, which he vocalized, um, online and in other places have kind of soured me on, on good old Dave. Um, I, uh, tried Glamour Puss and I'll be honest, it was beautiful. The, the, the new stuff, the new drawings, um, were really well done, but I found the story, what little there was, to be mind-numbingly boring. Um, it may shock you, but there are a lot of times when I, I just can't pick up a book just because it's pretty. If if the story doesn't have something, some kind of hook 
to pull me in. I, I, I just can't plunk down my money. It's, it's a struggle, right? But, um, I don't, I'm not aware of, of his Kickstarter stuff. I, I would, I did see the, the uh, Kickstarter in order to, uh, clean up his old work and, and do it digitally and, and all that. And I wasn't in on that because like I own, um, what I don't own in the Cerebus single issues I have in the phone books. So I have all of Cerebus and there was no need for me to have it digitally. Um, so, uh, I'm not really aware of current developments in, uh, Kickstarter in regard to Dave Sim. And I gotta be honest, I really don't care about them. Like I said, plucked him from, from my mind. Uh, whatever, I wish him well in whatever he chooses to do, but, uh, just recently I was going through the previews and I saw that Cerebus in Hell that was, uh, resolicited for whatever reason. It was solicited a bunch of months ago and then, uh, something happened and now it's resolicited again and, um, I, I, I can't order it. I just, that, that religious gobbledygook that he infused Cerebus with the last bunch of years of its existence it, it was a chore to read i probably destroyed a whole lot of brain cells in the process and um it was repetitive and uninteresting and reams uh just column after column of tiny teeny teeny type saying the same thing over and over and over again and the spot illustrations were great he's he's a very accomplished illustrator. I love Dave Sims' style, but I just can't buy into the work anymore. It, there's too many things against it. Um, the religion, the the man's opinions. I just I, I don't care. So I mean, I got to be honest, right? Um, one of his his accomplishment in comics is major. A 300 issue series written and largely drawn by one man. That's something to, that's, that's great. Good on you. I mean, that, it's fantastic. Uh, not many people have managed to do that. Eric Larson's coming cr- close, right? Um, uh, but no, I, no, no opinion at all on, on Dave Sim. So, other than what you just heard, I just, I, I don't care all that much. So, I, I, you know, I hope I didn't give you a, a pat answer, but I, I don't care. All right, let's see what else we have here for y'all. Um, I never got around to talking about Scooby Apocalypse number six, which I thought was a great issue, um, mainly because well, the reason why I didn't talk about it was because David had not read it at the time I wanted to talk about it, and I'm not going to pull one over on Mr. Price like that, but he's not here. So now I can talk about it. Scooby Apocalypse number six was written by the great team of Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. Art on the main story is by Howard Porter, Wellington Alves, and Scott Hanna. Color art by Hi-Fi. Uh, the backup story, which is really awesome, was uh, illustrated by Dale Eaglesham, written by the team, and colored by Hi-Fi. This issue is called The Secret History of Velma Dinkley. Dun, dun, dun. Um, and we are brought up to speed on what has happened to Ms. Dinkley to make her the way she currently is in the series. It turns out that she was the youngest of five Dinkley children, and unfortunately for her, the only female. Four brothers, and they were not very kind 
to their, their sister Velma. Um, she's unwanted by her father, Dale, constantly overlooked, uh, ignored by her brothers, even though she has a genius level intelligence. Um, she's excruciatingly awkward socially. Uh, the usual stuff, mistreated by her classmates. She doesn't fit in, of course, because she's so damn smart. Basically going through life alone. Uh, and aside from her mother, unloved, right? It's gotta take its toll on a person. Um, she's removed from public school, shunted off to a private school for gifted children, um, where she manages to make, uh, one friend. She does have a friend. Um, a girl named Madeline. Uh, but she kind of destroys this girl in a public outburst after the Madeline comes back from summer vacation and she looks and acts very much different than she had previously. Cleaned herself up, got rid of the glasses, wearing current fashions, none of which Velma gives a damn about. This girl had taken steps to better integrate herself into society. And Velma's just not having it. She's not agreeing with it. And and she lashes out and pretty much crushes Madeline. Um, and then her Velma's parents divorce. And the mother is sent to a rest home. Uh, but uh, the dad, Dale, just tries to uh, keep Velma from... From the public, uh, she he doesn't want to even admit that he has a daughter. He keeps her home. Uh, she's homeschooled uh, by seventeen. She has doctorates in chemistry, biology, astronomy, physics, uh, astrophysics, and engineering. Yow, seventeen years old. <laughs> uh, so, um, a person of her accomplishments is very desirable, regardless of what their parents think of them. Um, and she takes a job at a research center at the South Pole. Like, again, sequestered, hidden away, out of view. She's she's shameful, right? And she has a mental breakdown. Why wouldn't she? Uh, like her mother. She, she She's out of it. And she's thrown in a rest home where she uh, one day is surprisingly visited by her brothers, her four brothers. One, two, three, four. If you are reading this series, that number should ring a bell. Uh, each of the brothers is very successful in their respective disciplines. One is uh, very successful in politics, the other in the sciences. Uh, one is a military man, and another is uh, very adept at the black ops. Uh, so there you go. You can put the pieces together. Spoilers that uh, the five that have initiated this current apocalypse are none other than Velma and her four brothers. That's nuts. That's just a great conceptual hook in this series. Uh, why is Velma so concerned with everything that's going on other than keeping herself alive? Well, this is why. Because she did have a hand in releasing the nanites. But where we thought she was just following orders, she may have done it for other reasons too, to please the brothers that never gave a damn about her. To begin with, it's it's neat. It's a cool hook, um, but the backup feature is even better because it spotlights um, that complex that uh, in which the four met, uh, and Scooby was one of the smart dogs that was trained there, 
we get to see other genetically and uh, cybernetically enhanced dogs that have escaped from the compound. Um, but, and they all have these like cerebral implants that allowed them to speak and to reason. It just gave them the old, you know, the big brains. And uh, unfortunately, those cerebral implants are on the fritz. When the complex lost power, so did the implants. Uh, now they're basically dogs with average intellects and really cool cyber enhancements. Um, all except one. There's one pooch left that does have a functioning implant. Guess who that pooch is? <laughs> Scrappy-Doo. It's crazy. Everyone hates Scrappy-Doo, don't they? I do. At least from the cartoons, I hate Scrappy-Doo. He's a little pain in the ass. He's even worse in the Scooby-Doo movie. Um, but this Scrappy-Doo is drawn by Dale Eaglesham, and it is cool AF. Um, I am very curious to see where this is going to go. Uh, Scrappy also has the ability to transform, to hulk out. <laughs> uh, it's so fun. Uh, Scooby Apocalypse number six. Howard Porter and gang are drawing the shit out of this book. It's great. Uh, we've said it before. I'm going to say it again in case you're not paying attention. And I have no one to counter me this time. All of the Hanna-Barbera books are absolutely fantastic. And you should definitely check them out. It's amazing when I have no one responding to my comments. I could say whatever I want. No one's going to call me on it. I could get used to this. Okay, I have something very, very special to talk about. Uh, it comes from a man named George E. Warner of uh, Super Graphics. And he's on the Facebooks, George E. Warner. Uh, if you are like myself a fan of the Bronze Age horror magazines, specifically the Skywald books. Oh, man. Your ears are going to prick up because what Mr. Um, Warner has done is he has taken the Monster Monster series that wove its way through the Skywald books. And I'll tell you exactly what issues this series appeared in. Uh, soon. He's taken the Monster Monster series, which was unfinished at the time of Skywald's demise. Skywald only lasted like five or six years. Um, and at the end of their, uh, when the publisher went, uh, belly up, there were series that were unfinished. Monster Monster was one of them. And, uh, George has called all of the uh, Monster Monster chapters into one book. And not only that, that would be great, right? Um, but he has finished the series, which was written by Augustine Funnel, illustrated by Pablo Marcos, Yao, Ricardo Viamonte, John Gallagher, and Paul Puigagut. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, as you all know. Um, and this book now sports a new cover illustration by John Gallagher. So Warner, working with the original writer, Augustine Funnel, to produce the last chapter of the Monster Monster series. Now, w there was a chapter that was produced that Skywald did not 
publish. It was printed in, I believe, a Spanish magazine called Dossier Negro. So didn't appear in the States. That's what a lot of foreign publishers bought up the rights to reprint Skywald material. Um, Grey Down in Australia published some Skywald stuff in their magazines. Um, there, there are a lot of British editions and Spanish and, and across the globe, the Skywald stories not only appeared in the Skywald books, but were appropriated by foreign publishers is what I'm trying to say. Long winded way that I'm trying to say. So you had a chapter that no one in the States had read now inserted where it belongs in the storyline along with the final chapter of Monster Monster in a very attractively priced trade paperback edition called, appropriately enough, Monster Monster, the complete illustrated Skywald horror mood masterpiece. Uh, it's a great story. Now, here's the problem with Monster Monster and in Skywald in general. Skywald had a trio of horror books, Nightmare, Psycho, and Scream. You know this if you're a Bronze Age fan. And the weird thing they did was they would continue series in different magazines. Like the first chapter of Monster Monster, which was called Monster Monster on the Wall, appeared in Nightmare number 12. Good. Now, if you read Nightmare, you would expect successive chapters to appear in Nightmare. Well, if you're Al Hewitson, you had other designs because the second chapter of Monster Monster, which was called In the Grave, appeared in Psycho number 13. Monster Monster Rise from the Crypt, part 3, appeared in Psycho 16. Monster Monster Heed Death's Call, Psycho 17. Monster Monster Watch Them Die, Psycho 18. Monster Monster and In This Land, A Monster, which was published in Psycho 19. And then Monster Monster Visions of Bloody Death appeared in Psycho 24. So there was a gap in between issues. It's just a weird way to approach a sequential storyline. Why would it jump from magazine to magazine? It forces you, if you wanted to know what else was going on in this Monster Monster storyline, it forces you to buy every book Sky Skywald published, which is... Not a great way to endear your readers to what you're doing, right? But the last two chapters, The Arms of Death Are Never Open and Monsters Love to Kill, are the outliers. They did not appear in any Skylog, Skywald magazine. And George Warner, thankfully, uh, and Augustine have closed the door on Monster Monster. And now you get the whole thing in one book. You can tell, you can see what happens. To that poor, abused and tormented man who, uh, unfortunately suffers from the curse of lycanthropy. Yes, when the wolf's bane blooms, he turns. And, um, it's a really neat storyline. Uh, if you also, if you're a fan of the Marvel Bronze Age stuff, specifically Monsters Unleashed and Jack Russell as the werewolf by night, Pablo Marcos's original depiction of the werewolf in this is very, <laughs> very close to what was going on at Marvel 
um, it's in fact there is a panel in uh, Mr. Marcos's uh, initial salvo. Maybe it's the second story. It's either in part one or part two that I swear I saw in an advertisement for a Marvel magazine. It's the werewolf running at you. It's very, you know, the, the very foreshortened, and the hand reaching out. He's running the one leg out, the other leg behind him. I'm sure as if you're a Marvel fan, uh, specifically of the monster magazines, you've seen this illustration. And, um, that is also, um, uh, the inspiration of that panel is also appeared in, in this monster monster series. I would bet my life on it. Um, they're very similar. So, but that's not all. Um, I ordered this book directly from Mr. Warner on Facebook. It came lickety split with a sticker and a, a, ri- a, a reprint of the original horror mood certificate for the International Shagath Crusade. This is a cool little, 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 um, certificate. Copyright 1974 on this by Skywald Publications. This is to certify that, you fill your name in, is a full degree member of the anti-Shugath crusade who pledges full support and participation in the eradication of the Shugath menace. Why? By personal action and by joining, when called upon, an expedition into the center of the earth where Shagaths dwell, of course, armed to the teeth with gunpowder, knives, bazookas, and other weaponry, pledging limb sanity, of course, and life in this noblest of all human causes in the service of all mankind. Why would you want to kill a Shagath? That ain't, that ain't cool. But anyway, you get that certificate, and you also, well, at least I did, you also get the Human Gargoyles, which was written by the great... Alan Hewitson and Richard J. Arndt, illustrated by Melo Cintron. Um, now, this is not a complete culling of the Human Gargoyle serial, which was uh, which did appear in the pages of the Skywald magazines. Like Monster Monster, it didn't appear in the same damn magazine. Part one was in Psycho number eight. Part two appeared in Nightmare number ten. Then it jumped to Nightmare 13, 14, 15, and 19. Part 7 appeared in Psycho number 20. It's nuts. I, I do not understand the logic of doing it this way. Um, part 8 was in Nightmare number 20. And Part 9, the final part, was in Nightmare number 23, which was, if you remember, the winter special. But this is a pretty unique endeavor because... Milo Cintron has redrawn certain pages and panels from the original. And I compared the two side by side. The redrawn panels look much better. Now, the, the original wasn't much, wasn't anything to scoff at. It was very nicely illustrated, but these new panels are amazing. And what they also have done is, like the Monster Monster serial, the Human Gargoyles was never finished at the time of Skywald's demise. And now you can find out what happens. So, um, if you are so inclined, fan of the Skywald, fan of Bronze Age horror, 
look George E. Warner up on the Facebooks and have him and tell him, hey, yo, I heard about this thing on 11 o'clock comics. I want one. I want a copy. All told, I believe it cost me 16 bucks for both trades and the certificate and the sticker with shipping. That's nuts. That's crazy. Wait until you see the cover. The new cover by um, John Gallagher is amazing. There's one part in the story. I'm not spoiling much because it happens at the end of the first chapter. There's one point in the story where the man cursed by the, the taint of the, the werewolf in werewolf form tries to kill himself, puts a gun to his head, boom, blows his brains out, or so he thinks. He didn't use a silver bullet. And the slug becomes lodged in his brain. So not only is he a werewolf, he's a nutty werewolf. <laughs> he's a nutty human, but he's an even nuttier werewolf because the thing is embedded in his brain and it's causing problems and he's going, and there, there's much other conflict in there. It's just a neat, neat storyline. Uh, get it. It's fantastic. If you are a Skywald neophyte and want to know more about the great publishing house of Skywald and do not want to invest in a shit ton of money for Alan Hewitson's great book, The Complete Illustrated History of the Skywald Horror Mood. It is a fantastic book. It's on my shelf. Yay for me, right? But it's really expensive to procure because it's out of print. You can get it Amazon used, but it's going to cost you. And this Google Books thing, I didn't know. I just found out in researching what I'm telling you that the complete illustrated history of the Skywald horror mood is available for you to read on Google Books. The whole book is here. It's crazy. I will, of course, include the link to this book in the Facebook notes so y'all can, can play along and learn. This is a very important part of Bronze Age history. Skywald, they may not have garnered the numbers that Warren did or Marvel, but their books are fantastic. And, um, Alan Hewitson was one of the absolute best writers and you should, you should really, uh, inform yourself like eerie and creepy. Skywald had their fair share of recurring characters. Um, in, uh, psycho, they had the heap, that heap, the Airboy heap, uh, appeared in Psycho and Frankenstein was a serial. Frankenstein monster, but the serial was called Frankenstein. Um, the mummy became a semi-recurring feature in, I believe, Nightmare. Um, but they're just cool books and they were, they were, they pushed the, the envelope like the Warren books. There was a lot of bloodshed, explicit bloodshed, and, um, of course, nudity. So they're, they're, they're raw. Great stuff. Their covers are amazing, especially the cover to Psycho number one, which is one of my all time favorite covers. Uh, if you haven't seen it, Google Skywald Psycho number one and look at that beast. It's amazing. It's a great painting. Um, I'm going to torment you guys a little bit and tell you all of the stuff we talked about in the uh, failed attempt, uh, to record this episode. Jason, when bonkers, as well he should, 
on um, The Deadly Hands of Kung Fu Omnibus, Volume 1, and The Master of Kung Fu Omnibi. Uh, we talked about Thanos number one, which I thought was amazing. Um, the other guy's mileage varied. Um, but uh, it's a Lemire is killing it at the moment. You, you should get tar, uh, Thanos number one. Uh, like I said, infamous and invincible Iron Man. David and I went all all cookie eye on Batman number eleven. We loved it. Um, there was some talk about the Doctor Strange movie, which I have not seen yet. David and Jason were were kooky for it. Um, not a single disparaging remark in the the fifteen or so minutes they talked about it, which you'll never hear. Sorry, uh, David talked about Mother Panic. Number one, and Jason regaled us with his opinions on uh, Kirkman, and as I said, as Outcast, not only the comic but the TV series as well. So that's that's a whole lot of something that you'll never hear, unfortunately, if you have the fortitude to listen to that crap that I put up on the Facebook page. Then you may come away with some of it, but. <laughs> Not a whole lot. I, uh, again, I gotta apologize for that. I don't know. It's, it's just a weird, strange glitch that we have to iron out. And, uh, until then, y- hopefully the, uh, the, the means I, uh, employed to eradicate the problem works. We haven't tested it yet, but, uh, you will be kept up to snuff on that if you go to our Facebook page. Uh, we have an 11 o'clock comics facebook page of course we talk about it a lot that's because it's hopping there's a lot of stuff going on the uh, 11 o'clock comics gift exchange is almost almost at the end you're right down to the wire if you want to get in on this thing i it may be too late i don't know but um i'm sure you could plead your case if you really really want to get in there and uh um ask uh, steven to uh grant you immunity from your misdeeds and and uh participate um that said i guess it's time to bring this bad boy home you've you're probably tired of listening to me by now which is you know i i i i gotta sympathize with you it's it's a different uh atmosphere when when all three of us are not here the camaraderie is is uh unfortunately not there but it will be next week hopefully cross your fingers all, all of them, even your toes. Uh, but I believe that you should save money on comics. Yep. And there's only one place to do it. Discount comic book service, DCBService.com. Remember, the Commandy Challenge, number one, will cost you $2.49. That's 50% off. Bean World, hardcover, volume four, hoka hoka, burble burble, $10.19. Ryan Brownie and Charles Sewell and Jordan Boyd's Curse Words, number one from Image, $1.99. And the addendum that I alluded to while I was talking about ROM. ROM, volume one, is specially discounted this month. You can get it for $9.99. It collects issues zero to four and ROM revolution. Do the math. IDW books are $3.99 a pop. This contains all that. For under ten bucks, don't be silly. DCBService.com. In your travels, 
I get to talk about whatever I damn well please talk about, and I am imploring you to read Zombie Tramp. I love it so much. Dan Mendoza's Zombie Tramp just came out in a really nice, slick uh, hardcover from Action Lab's Danger Zone. It collects the first year of Zombie Tramp, 12 issues. Um, <laughs> I really love this book. It's dirty. It's violent. Um, written by Dan Mendoza and Jason Martin. Artwork by, oh, boy, Tim Chu with Dennis Budd, Anna Lencioni, Winston Young, Victoria Harris. Colors by Jason Martin. Dave Dwanch. Woohoo! We know him on letters with Jason Martin and Adam Wolitt. Um, the, uh, titular character, <laughs> I did that on purpose is now in possession of the Necronomicon. And she can cloud. She's hip on the magics of the Necronomicon, and she can cloud minds. She can make you think what you're seeing is not a zombie, uh scantily clothed zombie. What you're seeing is a scantily clothed normal woman. So that's how she gets to jump on uh, people, and it gets her out of a lot of... uh a lot of nasty situations, one of which in, in, involves uh, an Elvis impersonating zombie with guts that hang out of his belly and uh, is very repulsive to look at. Um, if you are a fan of Vamp Blade, the first appearance of Vamp Blade turns up later on in this run, towards the, towards the end, and... Uh, you get to see that. But just go. Get this book. It's really inexpensively priced. It's, um, I don't have my glasses on, but it's, uh, collects the first full year of the wildly popular ongoing series in one deluxe volume for $24.95. That's the price of a standard Marvel hardcover. You get 12 issues in this thing. And it has a spot varnish on the front. Beautifully designed. It's a great little book. If you like TNA and nudity and zombies and bloodshed and horror and um, slasher uh, type movies, um, if you were a fan of Hack Slash, you're going to love this. If you're not reading it, why aren't you reading it? Zombie Tramp from Action Lab, Danger Zone. The thank you that I saved for the end of this episode is going out to you, the listener, for uh, putting up with me for what is probably about an hour and a half. I thank you for doing that, but desperate times call for desperate measures, and we had to get an episode out. Remember that streak? 447 uninterrupted weeks of what I like to call entertainment. You may call it something else, but we've been doing this for a long time without a break, and I wanted to continue the streak. There is nothing I won't do to keep that running. Uh, as you have heard this episode, it's, it's in my mind, it is one of the most important things that I do. I don't consider many things sacred, but this show is one of them. And I will do my damnedest to get it out to you every single week without fail. So thank you, the listener, for putting up with me. Thank DCBService.com for sponsoring this mess. And as always, this is so sad. Do I want to do this? Yeah, all right. I'll do it. As always, say goodnight. 
David. Did you hear him? He did it. It was just really, really low. It was in there. But you didn't hear it. I'm sorry. So join us next week. If you enjoyed any of this, please leave us this atypical episode. If you enjoyed any of it, leave us a review on iTunes or a similar podcast aggregator. And uh, we love you so much. Come back next week. We'll all be here, hopefully, tentacles crossed, and uh, serving up what we do. So join us. Bye.